This episode of Converge with my guest, Ryan Holiday is sponsored by Faster Mind Coaching, world-class business coaching at a price every indie entrepreneur can afford. For more information, check out fastermindcoaching.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Ryan Holiday is an American author, marketer, and media strategist who's worked with standouts as Tucker Max, Robert Greene, Tim Ferriss, and many more. He's known for things like his controversial work, or at least some people think controversial work, as the director of marketing at American Apparel, uh, his love of stoicism as a way of life personally and professionally, and really popularizing the idea of growth hacking with marketing. He has plenty of fans around his book recommendations. Uh, he himself is an author of The Obstacles Away, Trust Me, I'm Lying, and Growth Hacker Marketing. But more than all of that, I think what you'll notice about Ryan is he's the kind of guy who you will likely agree with and disagree with, but you just can't ignore. And I hope as we get into the conversation, you pick up the kinds of nuggets that you can then take and exploit for yourself. When you come up with an explosive idea, you don't have to do as much marketing, right? Like the, the idea does most of the marketing. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Ryan Holiday, welcome to Converge. Yeah, it's good to be here. I, I'm a fan. Uh, I uh, have looked at your stuff and read your stuff for a while. A lot of it has been through introductions around uh, like coming at you from different angles, one from just as someone who's trying to market stuff, another from uh, you know a friend of yours, Tim Ferriss, not a friend of mine. I don't know him, although he's been an inspiration to me in many ways. When I, when I hear you two talk about uh, stoicism, I'm really drawn into that. I went to grad school and studied philosophy, and you helped me reframe what stoicism was and wasn't. Uh, but then you have this other angle on kind of cheating systems and hacking like life uh, in a lot of different clever ways. And uh, for our audience, the folks who are trying to, you know, live in that crossroads of, of uh, creativity and commerce, there's a lot of angles that we could approach in this conversation. So forgive me if we jump around a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could just give us a little context for, for how you got to the situation you're in. You're a best-selling author. You have like 35,000 people are subscribed to your newsletter list of book recommendations, probably way more than that, actually. But give a little context for how you got to today. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I started in marketing. I was I, I was working for bloggers who were trying to turn their blogs into books. So I sort of got started, you know, the mid 2000s. It sort of became this whole industry, right? I mean, this is where most books come from these days. They sort of come from online. So I, I was sort of experienced this moment in time in, in which publishing both online and offline was changing a great deal. I learned some sort of marketing tactics that ultimately led, I, I went on and I was the director of marketing for American Apparel for a number of years. And then that led to my first book, which was, I don't know how I would describe it, but it, it's sort of an expose about how controversial companies and people and figures interact with the media and the both the problems and the benefits of that system. Um, so it's, it's really a book about a certain type of marketing, uh, 
with sort of warts and all. Um, and that led to my second book, which was about stoicism, which is sort of personal philosophy that I adhere to. And then my, my third and most recent book is sort of kind of weirdly a combination between the two, although it probably doesn't feel that way. It's, it's about how startups or small businesses or companies without a lot of resources have sort of reinvented marketing and used those what many people would see as weaknesses to their to their advantage. So my books definitely jump around all over the place, but that's sort of how I exist as a person. So I, I'm able to deal with it. <laughs> well, having spent some time in your books, that is definitely my impression. It feels like it's been, you can see the plot points uh, in the thread line through them. And it, it's also striking to me that, like the word that keeps coming up for me regularly is, uh, it seems like you experiment a lot. Uh, it seems like you're pragmatic. There's kind of a what works uh, yeah. baseline for you. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, so when I was in college, I, the first one of the first authors I ever worked with was was Robert Greene, who wrote the the sort of infamous book, The Forty Eight Laws of Power, and I, he sort of taught me how to write, but he also taught me sort of how to think about things strategically, how to try things, how to sort of deconstruct systems, and so that has been very influential on how I think and solve problems. Plus, you know, many of the clients that I've worked with, it, it sort of all came together. But yeah, there's there's a logic to it, although when forced to describe it in a few sentences, it, it sort of loses that logic. But it was it was definitely sort of jumping, you know, jumping from one thing to the other, taking what I'd learned, applying it to this new thing, and then jumping to the next thing. And and that got me to a very unusual place, but it's it's one I, I'm I'm very happy with. The other thing that strikes me is, uh, especially with the most recent book with Growth Hacker Marketing, I mean, it took me a while to, to see the obviousness of it, but although, when, especially as I read the last chapter, it really came out. The whole idea behind growth hacking strikes me as, as this kind of like, let's, let's not market anything. Let's bake marketing into the thing. So yeah. that as this thing comes out, it's going to go. And, and you were clever enough to actually do that with the book itself. It kind of reminds me of Alex Bloomberg with his startup podcast these days, or, uh, there's yeah, plenty that, that, of these examples where it's just yeah. so striking. Well, it, I mean, so we we're talking about experiments. I mean, I'd heard what the word growth hacking was. I read an article about it. And then so I decided I would write an article about it because it was interesting to me. And I thought it sort of connected with some of my experiences, but I wanted to learn more about it. So I wrote this article and it was that article which led to a book deal, which led to the ebook, which led to the paperback which led to me sort of, you know, in the middle of all that, exploring this topic in, in what became a full-length book. So it's about sort of taking risks, trying things, and then when you see that, when you see something that you've experimented start to yield some results, then really investing heavily in that. And so I think what you see with, with the sort of baking marketing in is when you come up with an explosive idea, you don't have to do as much marketing, right? Like the the idea does most of the marketing, but that's really hard for people because they're so they're not good at experimenting. It's it's so hard for them to try new things that when they do something, that's it. And if it does, so so they're basically just hoping to get lucky. They're hoping the one thing that they picked is the thing that worked. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not true. And and that's where the experimentation sort of. Uh, growth hacking, minimum viable product idea, I think, you know, can really yield some results for people. Well, let's let's drill down on that a little bit and maybe wrap it around an example, because I, th yeah. I think a lot of folks, when they hear this, they're like, well, I take experiments, but maybe they're self-deceived. Maybe they don't get it. So yeah. give us an example. Well, so let, let's look at publishing, right? And we'll look at the growth hacking book because it's a kind of a, a decent um, uh, meta analogy, right? 
typically the way publishing works is you have an idea for a book. You write a huge proposal for that book. Uh, so you're investing hundreds of hours. Then you sell it to a publisher who gives you an advance because they think based on the proposal, it sounds like a good idea. Then you go write it. A year and a half later, the publisher releases it. And then it's right like a month before that release. That's when you start thinking about how to market this book. So people think that they're experimenting. They're like trying, you know, this is what I want to write a book about. But really, they're just gambling. And they're actually putting a lot of money on that gamble, a lot like a year's labor, you know, whatever the cost of the advances, all this stuff. There's there's a huge gamble there. And really, it's not based on any market validation other than, you know, gut instincts. So with, with the growth hacking book, I write an article, an unpaid article about it for Fast Company where I was a contributor. That article does well, like it gets traffic, right? And growth hacking is something that people are talking about. So now it's been validated in two ways. Instead of writing a book that takes me a year to write, we write an ebook first. And it's only 10,000 words, it takes two months to write, and then it can be released almost immediately after. And then based on the actual tangible sales like sales track record of that book, do we decide to roll it out into a paperback? So it's being validated along the path. And, and so what, what they call that in the startup space, they call it a minimum viable product. What's the smallest version of your idea that you can get out to the public to then judge whether the public likes it or not, or if there's any sort of spark or connection between you and your audience before you go further down that road, whether it's with time, money, resources, whatever. So minimal viable product comes from Eric Rise's uh, Lean Startup. And for folks who aren't familiar with that, you should be. You need to go check that out. But without, yes. getting, without getting too lost into that side of it, I love that from the perspective of uh, the idea experimentation. But, mm -hmm. but while that's, you're going through those kind of stages, you also had these kind of marketing efforts alongside. Sure. So like you were very clever with really delivering a lot of value. Like when your ebook came out for this book, it was really low priced. Uh, if you, if you, uh, as an early adopter, I was like getting access to a ridiculous amount of like downloadable stuff and yeah. BitTorrent stuff and all these kinds of stunts, it seems like. And Tim, Tim Ferriss, you do the same thing with him. Uh, sure. And that's where I see it most often. It just seems extraordinary. The amount of value that gets created is actually overwhelming What's the thinking with on that side of the equation? Yeah, so so I mean, what you want is that explosive reaction, right? And part of the ways that you do that is you over deliver. Like, like how many books have you bought that you you thought were going to be good, and then you read it and it wasn't good, and so you didn't tell anyone about it. But that but most books sell by word of mouth, and so that author probably tried to do a lot of marketing for their book, but they didn't deliver the product that they needed, and they didn't deliver that excessive value in a way that makes you say, I have to tell other people about it. And so what Tim has gotten really good at is he's such a prolific producer of stuff that like when he does a book, it's 650 pages or I can't produce like that. So with Growth Hacker, you know, the book was 100 pages, but I said, what are other things that I could give people who bought this? So if you send an email to this email address, I give you like the interviews that went into the book. I give you like a, a free chapter from one of my previous books. And so... I want so the way it works like with Growth Hacker is like you spend five dollars on the book, I'm giving you sixty dollars worth of bonuses that really didn't cost me anything, but they're worth sixty dollars, right? So now you're you're actually revenue positive for having purchased the book. 
that I was going after a positive reaction by doing that. And I think it largely succeeded. I mean, I heard from all sorts of people that they really appreciated that. And I'd never tried it before. And, and I'd never seen a book that had tried it before, frankly. But I just thought like, hey, what's the harm? If it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it's just, you know, it's 101 pages in a book instead of 100. Well, let's look at this from a couple of different angles. Uh, you know, going yep. back to Tim Ferriss, he likens you to uh, one part Machiavelli, one part Ogilvy, uh, 100% results driven. And, yeah. and for folks who don't know Machiavelli or Ogilvy, give people a little context for because I think that that is resonant with it seems like everything you're saying here and, and might be helpful kind of anchors for folks. Yeah, so Ogilvy is obviously one of the, the greatest sort of marketers who ever lived. He's sort of Ogilvy's a multi-billion dollar marketing firm at this point, but he was sort of the Don Draper of his day, he actually lived in around that period. Machiavelli is a renaissance uh, sort of political and strategic thinker who is notorious for sort of, I mean, the most common sort of phrase attributed to him, although he never actually really said it, is the ends justify the means. But it's this sort of idea of, of doing whatever it takes um, and, and sort of not caring about what is proper or prestigious or or um, dignified, but instead, you know, whatever it takes to accomplish the goal that you're trying to do. So I, I, I don't know, I, I certainly can see that description applied to myself. I know Tim, Tim blurred that on one of my books. I think the idea is, I, I try to take the best of multiple different platforms or systems and apply them together. And, and maybe if I'm lucky, put a little bit of my own spin on it. But I, I really try to go back to the sort of classics or best you know, that ever were and, and, and try to learn from them and apply their, their line of thinking to new problems and, and, and opportunities. When I think of Machiavelli, uh, and I, I'm actually trying to speak on behalf, he's, he's kind of like, um, a lot of characters, you know, if people took philosophy 101 in college. Yeah. Uh, they may have read somebody, but friends, they, yeah. they didn't really read much and, and mm -hmm. they're kind of making a good, bad split. Like, Oh, he's a good yeah. philosopher. Bad philosopher. And Machiavelli right. is easily one of those guys that go, Oh yeah. If you're a Machiavellian, you're, you're sure. a, a manipulator or you're, you know, one of those guys. But I, I my hunch is you have a, a, a deeper take on that. Sure. But, but my question is for folks who, who see some of the like American Apparel, a classic mm -hmm. example of like they they are willing to walk the the thin line, or right. you know Max Tucker again, kind of thing. The way it just like, and you can do stunts with these guys. And do you ever kind of get the sense of like, man, I'm just I got to put a bag over my head. Like this is just a little. Uh, I, I there's something unethical here. Uh, no, that kind of thing. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, look, I I certainly turned down plenty of things that I didn't think were good. Um, and that I didn't that I didn't want to be a part of. The reason American Apparel has always done his like sort of controversial ads is that its ad budget is a fraction of what its competitors spend because it doesn't have the money because it, it doesn't exploit its workers. So I, I don't know. I, I I think that's fair. I, I try to look at the bigger picture and and what my sort of thinking is. If I like this product and if I think it's good and if I think it's deserving of people's time, I'm willing to you know ends justifying the means, I'm willing to take sort of creative risks and to do unconventional things to, to get it, the attention that I think it warrants. So uh, Gorilla, unconventional, I, I love the kind of like getting a lot done with a little. Uh, yeah. When you wrote uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying, and you kind of did an expose on, on, on how scrappers find their way. That's how I, yeah. I read it. And as somebody who's, uh, you know, I'm a scrapper, I'm trying to work it out. But you got a lot of heat for that that piece. Sure, sure. Talk I mean, that was intentional, though. Like, I mean, I, I would much rather, and this is from the 40 Laws Power, I'd much rather be controversial than ignored, right? And that's what I think most authors or 
all content producers maybe miss is they're so like they don't want to offend people and then they wonder why people don't have an opinion of them and it's like because you're indistinguishable from everyone else invisible and so so when i was like i would have loved to write an exclusively highbrow intellectual academic criticism of media that would have been very entertaining to me personally but i'm not writing for myself i'm writing for an audience and as my first book i have to I have to drum that audience up from nothing. And so that that's part of it. And that's something you have to think about. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about, like, I want to, one last question about marketing. And then I want to yeah. turn a corner as, as you, as a, as a writer in particular, but mm -hmm. on the marketing front, from a growth hacking perspective, you're, you're baking the marketing into the product. Um, you know, I've been working recently with some, some startups uh, where it's, especially in the tech space where it's mostly engineers. Right. And yeah, and uh, they're smart enough. They have a design aesthetic. They're working really hard. And I, I was sitting here going, like, I can't code, or at least, right. uh, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of a little on the marketing side. What, what, do, what does a marketer have to contribute these days to these kinds of things where the marketing is baked into the product? Does that, make, does that question make sense? Yeah, oh, totally. Well, because what can happen from that engineering point of view is that they make something that's very compelling to engineers, but not compelling to the general public. And then what they think, because they don't understand marketing, uh, they don't understand sort of social sharing these things. They think that that can be bolted on after the fact, and it can't be. So what I talk a little bit about in the growth hacking book, and, and someone could write a, a whole book just about this, is how can people who are good at sort of sensing what the public wants, what the public needs, what the media will react to, how can they incorporate those insights while the ingredients are still being mixed so the final product comes out in a way that it needs to be? The best marketing advice is to not make a crappy product. And if you've already made a, you might have made a, a an awesome technical product, but if it's not a compelling user proposition, it's crappy, and there's not much marketing that can save you. That is perfect <laughs> on so many levels. Uh, but and it's funny, it, it mirrors very much. I, I saw an interview that you did. It was probably one of the BitTorrent things that you sent out. You were basically making the case of like, you know, after everyone leaves, uh, you know, inevitably people are going to line up and, and ask me some questions and I'm going to smile and nod and forget that, them in a few minutes. But what I really want to say is this one thing. And this one thing is just stop making bad things. And if you make a good thing, right. that's actually, I always want to market those products because they market sure. themselves. Talk a little bit about how people are maybe disconnected from the reality of what they're making. Yeah. Well, no, look, uh, another way of putting that is like people are like, oh, I want to get like press attention, right? Um, I want to get in the media. And then what they're forgetting is that the media is sitting around going, we want to write about interesting things. Like no reporter has ever said like, there's just so much good stuff out there. I can't write about it at all. They're like starving for great stuff. And if you can figure out what that stuff is, what they are after, what they're interested in, you make something that fills that niche, that does the majority, like, now you don't need to hire a publicist because the media doesn't want a middleman. They want direct access to it. Like what I always say is like, okay, instead of pitching the New York Times, let's do something that the New York Times will call us and ask about. And if you can sort of embody that philosophy with what you're doing, I, I think you find that, that a lot of things that you once thought were really difficult become a lot easier. Okay, so let, let's turn the corner for folks who are like the solopreneurs, maybe they're writers or whatever, and just get pragmatic for a second. Um, mm -hmm. I know you spent a lot of time in a methodical process around like how you take notes, your note-taking system that you learned with Robert Greene, 
Um, yep. You have a, a strong relationship between reading and writing. You have a particular kind of workflow. You use certain tools. And I, I know you get asked these kinds of questions all the time, so I'm a little sensitive to ask it, but I know our audience are going to care. So talk a little bit about, as you are like wrapping ideas with words or coming up with something you want to launch, what kind of a system do you, how do you approach it? Well, look, so I'm researching my next book right now. And so I went through all the books that I read in the last two weeks. And these are the notes that I took from from that from those books. Okay, so what he's holding up right now is a is a stack. I mean, it's got to be what three inches of four by five cards. This is probably three hundred note cards, maybe two hundred fifty note cards. And for context, you're reading about two hundred fifty books a year, something like that. I don't really keep count, but so yeah, a lot of books. Yeah, and so, so you know, look, some of these are some of these are large passages that I typed out, um, and sometimes they are. Sorry. Sometimes it's, you know, it's one sentence that I wrote down. And so these are these are notes that I took from books uh, or, or writing or just things that occurred to me. And then I'll organize them and I have boxes that are organized by theme. And then uh, like this is the in this is the intro to the new book that I'm working on. Right. So it's not it's not very many, but that's that's about typical. So all these note cards say intro in the in the corner, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't see if you can see. I but anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah, so so I'm I'm taking notes, I'm organizing these notes. Um, and then when I sit down to write, if I was gonna sit down and write the intro tomorrow, which I you know I'm not there yet, I would set these cards on my desk and I would take you know, some of these are sentences, some of these are words, some of these are bullet points. That makes it the core foundation of the of the book. And you know, a with uh, with each one of my books, I've used uh, a, you know a certain number of note cards. It's all organized by theme, and then the research and the accumulation of sources that all comes first. And then when you sit down to write, you're just organizing that. You're sorry, you're just articulating what you've organized. I find that to be the the most efficient way to write. All right, and then last question around the writing process, like yeah. uh, the context within which you write, because it seems like. I'm making this up a little bit. It seems like you're pretty uh, autodidactic. Uh, you you seem a little introverted. You focus, you create a space. But I don't know if yeah. that's true. Is that, How important is like daily rituals and balance uh, on your space important. and time and that sort of thing? Talk a little bit about that. I mean, this is my office. This is where I do all m- most of my writing when I'm not traveling. It's where I, I read on the bed behind me. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very big on routine, on systems, on structure. So then when I'm not writing, I can just sort of do whatever I want and sort of try to keep the workspace organized and clean and clear. I think it helps create better arguments. And then when you're then the rest of the day can be on on my my sort of business side of things. Right on. All right. So then as a solopreneur, I'm wondering if you give a couple of examples, especially given your experience both in making stuff yourself or working with others who are making stuff some of the biggest mistakes and best moves specifically around how people are thinking about their work. So what came to mind for me was uh, this notion of mental models, like the way you're relating with the thing. I read uh, Ed Catmull's Creativity Inc. book. I really liked it. And he talked a lot about how certain mental models would have a limiting effect on what their people were producing versus you know, other mental models really had this kind of expansive impact on their work. As you've worked with folks, does anything come to mind in people who just had the wrong model in mind or people who had the right model in their head and it made a big difference? I don't totally know about models. I did a piece recently, something I've been seeing a lot, on on passion 
And I find that very passionate people tend to make the worst clients and produce the worst results. It's like they confuse like having an energy, having energy about something with like actually making constructive headway on that thing. So they tend to be very energetic, have a lot of enthusiasm, ask a lot of questions, but they don't sort of do the hard work. Right now, I'm sort of on an anti-passion kick, if that answers your question. It does. It's like, that's fantastic. Uh, and also, and better than what you're saying, it sounds like like building constraints into the workflow is, is also pretty important for you. Yeah, like uh, writing-wise, I only try to write, you know, max maybe an hour or two a day, maybe a little bit more if I'm really working on a book. But I tend to, you know, sort of work on something, get the most your sort of energy and, and attention on it, and then move on and then return to it day in and day out. And that, so it's, a, it's kind of a, I think of like writers when you talk, or runners rather, people who, they don't measure their miles per day, they measure their miles per week. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's great. That's a great analogy. Okay. So, uh, and then for folks who aren't just making things like, you know, books or whatever, like two other examples come to mind are people who are selling services mm-hmm. and people who are maybe promoting events. Can they have uh, kind of like, what kind of advice do you give to those folks? Is it any different than you would say to folks who are putting together a product? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think it's funny. Like most of the time people are like, oh, like, uh, you know, what should I do marketing wise? And then I always go like, well, how do you get most of your customers currently? And it's like the first time they've ever thought about this. Like, like they want more customers, but they haven't bothered to put in the time to think about where those customers come from. Because you're, what you should do is go like, most of my customers come from doing X. How can I scale doing X so I get more customers, right? So it's, it's hard to talk about these things generally, but that's what I try to think about with clients. It's like, okay, this is your best source of business. What can we do that increases the flow from that source? You know, like with with a services company, marketing isn't what's going to drive customers. Mostly what gets customers is referrals from other customers. So how can you encourage and incentivize that? And I know that doesn't feel as fun as being interviewed for a local TV show, but it's better. Okay, so that's great for a service. So so what about an event? Is that any different? Like, like, um, like, like let's say it's an event that's like starting from scratch. Like they don't have the benefit of past customers or, sure. and I think services too. Like people, yeah. I, I run this all the time. People discover say photography or whatever. It's a ridiculously commoditized and saturated market, but they're like you say, they're passionate towards it. They're, <laughs> right. they're going to get, there's no barrier to entry and right. and they just spent three grand on, on a kit. So, and, and, and let's, let's assume like they're not idiots. They're really just, they're, they're sincere. They, they're willing to sure. do the work. How do you, how do you guide them? Yeah. Uh, look, I don't, I don't know about those sort of things. It's not really my space, but what I, what I tend to think about too, is like, okay, what is everyone else doing? How can we do something that's not that, you know, right? Like, you know, mo- it's like, oh, you want to be a photographer. So you got to get a website, then you got to get a booth at a show and then you got to do this. And you got to do that. Like that's the playbook. Well, so that means that a million other aspiring photographers are doing that. Well, maybe that's like, um, there's a great book. It's uh, called Blue Ocean Strategy, uh, which I really like. It's by the Harvard Business Review, I think. But anyway, they're saying like, don't compete in red oceans, compete in blue oceans, like clear waters where you can see and there's there's no one else fighting. That's what I would try to think about if I was trying to break through. Like, I, as a writer, I, I really wanted to be a writer, but I didn't get an MFA. I didn't get an agent. I didn't pitch for, you know, proposals for five years. I went and did really interesting things and met a bunch of authors. And finally, someone came to me and said, you should really do a book. And I said, okay. 
And that's how my first book came out. Right on. You're getting married here shortly. I am. Yeah, and, in, uh, in like three, four months. So I'm wondering, in that process of, you know, the big promise, big commitment, mm-hmm. big declaration to the plan. Sure. Does that change anything for you? Do you do you see your, find yourself thinking as you're kind of transitioning from kind of one life stage to it, maybe a different sure. life stage? I don't know how you, you view it, but I know there's a lot. The reason I'm asking the question is there's a lot of listeners out there who they they might have started in the creative, the business of creativity in yeah. one stage of life, and then things shifted, sure. and they have a, you know they're in the valley of the diapers, and they got a mortgage, and it feels like the whole world has shifted, even though they're the same person. How how are you no. relating with that? That's very interesting. I, I haven't thought that much about it. I mean, part of it for me is like I, I've been in this same relationship for over seven years now. So before I was doing any of this stuff. So it's sort of been the constant thing throughout the the ebbs and flows of, of the, the creative life. So on the one hand, there's there's not as much of an anticipated change there. But I do think it's interesting, like, you know, do you want to be someone who's wedded to your work or do you want to be someone who's wedded to you know, uh, life and family or what's important to you? And I think that's that's something that I, when I was, I, I wrote another article recently where I was thinking about this. It's like, you know, some people go like, family is the most important thing in the world to me. And that's great. But then, then they go and compare themselves to people who have not made that same commitment. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about. It's like, okay, what race are you running? Why are you running it? And then only judge yourself against similar runners, right? If you're, if you are comparing, like, again, if you think family is important, and then you're comparing it to a perpetual bachelor or, a, you know, an eight-time divorcee, like, you are going to make yourself miserable because you are, you are trying to have your cake and eat it too. And that's not how it works. This was episode 041 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes, as well as faster mind coaching, affordable business coaching for the rest of us. Music today provided by TripleStreetMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at Acreative.co for audio production. And a special thanks to Ryan for being with us. Visit him at RyanHoliday.net. Finally, if you haven't shared an episode of Converge with a friend, would you consider it? Who do you know who would benefit from the wisdom of the likes of Ryan Holiday, Seth Godin, Chris Gillibo, Ann Hanley, Jeff Goins, and many, many others? Why not invite them to join our tribe? By the way, are you caring enough to do that sort of thing? Let's us know that we're doing something right, and we recognize it's a really big deal. So thanks in advance. That's it for now. I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait 